going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14, continuing on in our series in Genesis and looking at the life of Abram, soon to be known as Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, the father of the Israelites, the father of really our faith, because uh, Jesus himself said that if you, if you had the faith of Abraham, you would love Jesus. <laughs> he understood that Abraham was a man of faith. And in fact, Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that Abram was a man who walked by faith. We understand from Scripture also that Abram was justified by faith. And so when we're looking at the life of Abram, we're looking at a man who, who is a man of faith, who also is a man whose fear is very real. He's a man who will walk in the way of the Lord and at a moment's notice will run and cower in fear. Anybody else? Right? And so there's much to learn from Abram, and we could take this as a character study all we want, but what we're really trying to do is dive deep into what God is saying through his word in the book of Genesis to point us forward to this hope that comes from the one that's promised. So remember the story is Adam and Eve and all creation were created by God and they were created as good. And then sin entered the picture through Adam and Eve's sin and now sinfulness has overtaken the world. There is a curse under which we live. Now we are in a world of sin and death. But God made a promise to Adam and Eve that through Eve's line, through her seed, one would come who would crush the head of the enemy, crush the head of the serpent, who would restore things, who would bring things back, who would bring us back, who would make things new and make things right. He would be one who would redeem. He would be one who would win in the end. And that's good news. And for the rest of Genesis, you're looking for who that is. Who's it going to be? Who's going to be the person who's going to come and crush the head of the enemy? Because everything starts to spiral downward very quickly, doesn't it? Into sin and anger and greed and violence. And the world erupts into this violent place of sin. And then one is called out. One who is righteous. One who is by faith. Not one who's perfect. A man named Noah. And you look at Noah and you go, is he the one? And he's one used by God, but after the flood and the ark, we learn very quickly Noah is not the one, right? When he's laying naked in his tent, we learn drunk off the fruit of the vine, we learn very quickly he's not the one. And the story continues, and there's a blessing that's given to the sons of Noah, and one son in particular is called out. He's going to be the one through whom God is going to keep his promise. And so we follow through until we come to a man named Abram. And Abram is a man who now has lived the way of the world. His whole family are moon worshipers. They're living in sin and in idolatry. And he's called out of darkness into light, called out of his land to go to a land the Lord would would show him and God makes a promise that he will make him a great nation and he will inherit this land that he gets to. He gets to the land. Everything looks good until the famine sets in. So what does he do? He leaves the land. He doesn't seek God. He goes after provision and he goes to Egypt. And when he gets to Egypt, we find out Abram's not the man. He's not the promised one because the first thing he does is say, hey, wifey, you're pretty, pretty amazing. And they're all going to notice that. And if they think that you're my wife, they're going to kill me. 
So in order to protect your loving husband, will you go be part of the harem of Pharaoh? Tell him you're my sister. Right? And so we learn very quickly, Abram's not the promised one. But Abram is going to be used by God to introduce us to this life of faith of what it looks like to live in the promised land without inheriting the full promise. Because this promise, this covenant, this land is going to belong to the descendants of Abram. So Abram has to live there, not quite grabbing hold of the promise yet. Not quite experiencing it. And so this, this becomes a picture of what our life is like, isn't it? Where we have a promise from God. And we know that it's realized and it's fulfilled and one day we're going to get it fully. But we're in the already promised but not yet fulfilled and we're living there every day in this world full of sin, violence, anger, deceit, greed. How do we live in a world by faith? And so we follow Abram and we learn from his mistakes. We learn from his triumphs. But ultimately, we see God moving history in a direction to bring us a deliverer that we can trust. So the question for us as we come to chapter 14, are we going to trust God in the midst of a whole bunch of warring kings? Are we going to trust God as the king of kings? Are we going to trust him in his sovereignty, in his providence, in his power, in his provision? Are we going to trust that his promise is true? And if so, how will we then live? If you would follow along in your copy of God's word, Chapter 14 of Genesis. These are some of the most fun names in all of Scripture. And so I'm going to ask Paul if you would stand and read. No, I'm just kidding. All right. Follow along if you would. Verse 1, chapter 14. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elasar, Chedalamer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings made war of Barak, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemabir, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. If you want to follow along with kind of some of this stuff, I'll put you a map on this sheet. All right? You can follow along. If you didn't get that, there's a map in the back of your Bible possibly as well. But I, I just encourage you to, to start to get the Valley of Siddim is near what we call the Dead Sea now. It's that place where everybody goes on vacation and it floats around, right, because it's so salty that you don't sink. Okay, that's where we're talking about this happening. So this is inside the land promised to the descendants of Abram. This is what's happening. Twelve years, those five kings, the kings of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and Bela had served Chedorlaomer, but in the 13th year they rebelled. In the 14th year, Chedorlaomer had had enough of the rebellion. And the kings who were with him, those four kings in verse 1, right, they came into the land. They came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shabakirathaim. So here's what's happened. You have a Chedorlaomer, he decides, I'm done with all of these cities and kings rebelling against me. I'm going to go put down the rebellion. And so he just starts going, like, wiping out city after city after city. And when he comes into the land of Canaan, into this land where Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities are there, those kings are going to come together in a coalition 
against Chedorlaomer and his forces. They see the four kings coming. They say, we got five. Let's go to war. Okay, verse 7. Then they turned back. Oh, wait, say, and, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out. Then they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, titled king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elasar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, tar pits. This is more like um, bubbling up from the earth type of hot mass. Okay? And this is the battlefield in the valley. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them and the rest fled to the hill country. So how well does the battle go when these five kings go out against the four kings? This is how well the battle goes. Some of the soldiers in fleeing the battlefield, some of the soldiers of the five city-states who were against Chedorlaomer, they decided it would be better to jump into the burning tar pits. Things went really well. Okay, the, the language here in the original language, it, it tells us that they, it, it's almost as if they make conscious decision. This is better than running. Let's just end it now. So they are mopping the floor with the kings of the valley. And so what happened? So the enemy, verse 11, took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. And this is where it gets interesting. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, meaning Abram's nephew, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Now, let's stop there for just a second. They defeat Sodom and Gomorrah. They run off the kings and their armies, and they come into the city, and they loot the city, and they take everything, including that blasted nephew Lot who's been causing trouble for Abram. Remember the last time we saw Lot? Last time we saw Lot, Lot and Abram had too much stuff coming out of Egypt, so the land couldn't support them. So what happened? Abram, in his generosity, because of the faith he had that God would keep his promise, was able to look at Lot and say, look at the land you choose. You go one direction, I'll go the other. You choose. Because I know God's going to give this land to my descendants. You choose where you're going to go. And Lot said, it looks really nice over there. And so he lived and moved by sight, not by the faith that Abraham had, but sight. He saw what looked good, and he went that way. And the more you see, he moved towards Sodom. Now we see that he's living in Sodom. Last time we saw him, he had just pitched his tent outside of Sodom. Now he's living in the city. Later, we're going to see he goes back to Sodom, and he's now a respected citizen in Sodom. This is a man who is determined by sight, that looks good, I'm going to keep grabbing onto it. You have Abram, who is a man who is living by faith. You have Lot, who's a man who's living by sight. So when he got caught up in the ways of the world, what happened? He got swept away in the fight of the world. This is the first war we see in all of Scripture, brought on by this violence of sin, and now Lot is swept up in it. They took all his possessions and they went their way. 
Verse 13, then one who had escaped the battle came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. So Abram loads up, jumps on his camels and his horses, and runs and just rides off after these kings who had just defeated five kings and their armies. Hey, you 318 guys, let's go. And when he got there, he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. He mops the floor with the ones who mopped the floor. (laughs) Five city-states. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. You can kind of picture this, can't you? Like, you almost picture Abram on his white stallion coming back in, the conquering hero, riding back into the valley with this long line of all of the people and all of the possessions he's bringing back. You can almost see the celebration, right? It just really doesn't go that way because this is what happens. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shabbat, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom showed his heart and said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Hey, you saved me. Why don't you, you know, keep the people. I'll take the gold. Or you give me the people, I'll, I'll take the, you take the gold. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre take their share. This is just one of the most fascinating passages in all of Genesis because you could go in about 50 different directions with this and we'll deal with some of the stuff in here. But I want to make sure you get the main point of the passage. And the main point is this. I'll give you a little Bible study tool that you can use every time you're reading the Bible. You ready? Here's your Bible study tool. The text that you're reading can never mean something to you that it didn't mean to the original readers or original hearers. Okay, so when you're looking for what the meaning of the text is, you have to go back to who was first reading this, who was first understanding this, and who are the people who were first understanding this? Moses wrote this to the Israelite people who were in transit from slavery in Egypt into a promised land that God had promised to them. And as they came to the promised land, the first time they looked at the promised land and said, those people are giants, those people are too big, there's no way we can take the land. Now they're at the promised land the second time. What are they going to do? What are they going to do this time? Are they going to be faithful? Are they going to trust the Lord and his promise? Are they going to trust the Lord for his provision? Are they going to trust the Lord and his power? Are they going to trust the Lord to give them the land? Are they going to be people of faith? And so as I read this and I I consider the story, you have mighty kings who are warring on all sides and you have Abram. Abram, who's standing there, is a man of faith, a man of worship, a man of courage, a man of righteousness. And you have Lot, who is very much bought into the ways of the warring kings. He's very much bought into the world there. 
Which one are you going to be? Which one, O people of Israel, will you be? Now, we could dive into Melchizedek, and we'll talk about him next week. Everybody going to be here for that one, or next week, two weeks. We'll talk about him in two weeks. Everybody's going to be here for that one, right? Because it's one of the most fascinating characters in all of Scripture. Okay? But today what I want you to see is Abram and his faith. So I want to just pull out a few theological realities from this passage. This is a, this is a story of war in which, if you notice, about the first 16 verses, it doesn't seem like God's showing up much. You notice that? It's just warring king after warring king after warring king. Where is God in all the midst of that? Now, that's different for Abram's life so far. So far, God's been speaking to Abram. God's been hanging out with Abram. Abram's been talking directly to God. You ever had those moments in your life where you've had very clear direction and you know exactly what you're supposed to do and you feel like you're moving in that direction and all of a sudden it seems like God just got really silent? Abram's in kind of one of those moments where he's in his tent, hanging out by the Oaks of Mamre, a place where he had built an altar, a place of worship for him, and he's watching the world fall apart. But when he gets engaged, what's it going to look like? So first thing I want you to see, Abram had faith in God's promise. And we first see this when Abram shows up in the story. Where is Abram? Lot's been hanging out. In Sodom, living in Sodom in the city. Where is Abram living? He's living in his tent by a place of worship for him. He had gone into the land and set up an altar at the Oaks of Mamre, and he is living in his tent. While Lot has established himself inside of a pagan city, Abram has separated himself to be one who will be a man of worship, a man of faith there in the world. He's not bought in. In fact, Hebrews 11 tells us that the mark of his faith in the land was that he lived in tents. That he lived as an outsider, as an exile, as a sojourner, as one who's coming through, one who understood the promise. And yet the promise had not been realized, so he wasn't buying into the way the world around him was doing things. So he's living in tents, not settling in the established pagan cities. Abram settled near a site of worship, not in a place that appeared prosperous, but in a place where he could have the nearness of the Lord. Abram had no heir to his fortune. He had no one to get his inheritance. He had no son at this point. The the people who would inherit what he had would be his servants' children or Could it possibly be that lot? But when the moment comes and right needs to be stood for, he wasn't concerned about what he could gain or lose because he had a promise from the Lord that this land would belong to his descendants. So what does he do? He hops on his horse and he rides off to stand for what's right. So, Abram had faith in God's promise. Abram had faith in God's providential rule. As I said, first 16 verses, it's as if God doesn't even exist in this valley. It's just war after war after this guy's right, this guy's wrong, this guy's wrong, this guy's right. Who's right? Who's wrong? Anybody watch the news lately? Who's right? Who's wrong? Let me say this as plainly and clearly as I possibly can. Most of the time in our world, they're all wrong. All of them. Here's Abram sitting in his tent up by the Oaks of Mamre while the world is going to war. 
and he doesn't feel it's necessary to choose a side. Isn't that fascinating? His faith does not mean he has to choose a side in the war. The world can war against itself, and Abram has God. We have a tendency to pick sides, don't we? We love picking sides. It's kind of the way life, like, pick a side. Why don't you just pick a side? Well, because there's not a good choice. If everybody's wrong, don't pick a side. And you notice in Abram what he does, he doesn't go to war for the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. What does he do? He goes to battle to save his nephew. That's right. But Sodom and Gomorrah will never be right. Folks, fight the right battles. If both sides are wrong, don't choose a side. Yes, that is a political statement sometimes. Okay? But make sure we're picking God's side. Make sure we're on the right side. So often in our world, everyone's wrong. All of these kings are wrong. Everybody's wrong. Violence and sin had taken over the valley. Abram wasn't going to have a part in it. Abram was content to honor the Lord without fearing the people of the land. Abram was surrounded by warring kings, but he honored the king of kings. He was in a place of worship. When God seemed silent, Abram trusted God's overarching sovereignty in the world. He looks at this king, Chedorlaomer's powerful, he's coming in, but at no point do you read that Abram goes, but Chedorlaomer, he's really, really powerful. I mean, he just really wiped out the valley. No, he says, hey, you 318, grab your horses, your camels, we're going. And bringing Lot back. When God provided a messenger, and I love this part of the story, one escaped the battle and comes. And this is what it says. It says, he came to Abram the Hebrew. What do you do with that? Why, why, Why does Moses put in there Abram the Hebrew? Have you noticed he's named off everybody else by the city that they live in or by the region that they're from? Why he calls him Abram the Hebrew. Why? Because he doesn't belong to that world. He's an outsider. He's an exile. He's not answering to any of these kings. He answers only to the Lord. He is a Hebrew. He's an outsider. He's an exile. He's a sojourner. So I ask you, if people know you, they know me, do they know you as Jim the Republican? Jim the Democrat? Or Jim the follower of Jesus? They looked at your Facebook feed. Which one would they know? Right? If you're not on Facebook, if they looked at your front yard, which would they know? Right? If they looked at your car, which would they know? I'm not saying it's wrong to stand for a political party. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm asking you is, which one identifies you? He's Abram the Hebrew. He's not part of Sodom. He's not part of Gomorrah. He's not part of this land. He's one who will stand off from the side. And then when this messenger comes in, what did Abram do? Did he go, wait, let me go back to the altar and spend some time praying about what I should do? No, he listened, then he acted. Let me say this. Sometimes we over-spiritualize everything as Christians. Sometimes obedience means actually doing something instead of praying about doing it. 
Sometimes being faithful means you actually have to act. Let me, let me make sure we understand. Faith without works is dead. So if he's a man of faith, and there's something right that needs to be done, and he goes, let me go back to the altar, spend some time with the Lord while Lot's suffering over there, would he have shown faith? Doing something spiritual. But that faith was meant to put, be put into action. So I want to make sure we understand that. We can look at the world and we can see everybody's wrong, but there is right. And when we see right that needs to be done, we need to do it. We need to do it because we're people of faith. Abram had faith in God's promise. Abram had faith in God's providential rule. Abram had faith in God's power. His household, 318 men, it says, and I love how specific the passage is there. 318 men. 318 men versus four kings and their armies. 318 men are going to go out against the armies of four mighty kings. Those four kings had already defeated and routed five kings in their cities, had looted cities. Now, Abram and his servants... Why they were trained, I have no idea. They've never been in a war. These aren't battle-hardened men. These are guys that Abram trained. And what happened? They went out and they defeated the enemy. Abram could be courageous and confident because of God's power. There's nowhere in this passage where Abram is demonstrated as the powerful one. Everything about this passage says, without God, he has no hope. Abram could be courageous and confident because of God's power. Abram could be strategic because of God's power. Do you notice what he did? When he got there, he did something that you just don't do in war back then. He split his army. He split his army and they battled at night. And in being strategic in this way, because of the power of the Lord, he didn't have to take everybody else's strategy. He could trust the Lord to be on his side. Here's a man who believed the Lord's promise, believed the Lord's providence, believed the Lord's power. So Abram was successful because of God's power. How do we know that? Melchizedek knows that. Melchizedek comes back and says, the Lord is the one who delivered your enemy into your hands. Folks, there is a battle in this world for what is right and for what is wrong. There is a battle for the hearts of men and for the hearts of women and children in our world. There is a battle that we live. Choose the right battles. Trust that God is going to provide. Live as if you don't belong to this world. So no matter which side wins or loses, it's not going to change your eternal reality. And when it comes down to it, make sure that you understand there's a greater battle than the one at hand. What is happening is not what's really happening. There's always something deeper going on. And so as we close this passage, what you begin to see is that the harder battle is ahead. It wasn't getting 318 guys and going to war against four kings. It's what's going to happen when he comes back to the valley. What happens when you come home and you've been successful? What happens when everything goes your way? What happens when all of the people are delivered and they're all coming in behind you singing your praises? You wouldn't believe what this battle was like. 318 dudes came in and just wiped these guys out. Abram, riding around on his horse. I mean, that dude was amazing. Right? 
all of a sudden you're successful. You've got all the loot. You've got all the people. They're all singing your praises. You come back to the valley, and what happens? If you're not trusting in God's provision in the midst of success, you will take credit. And here's what the more dangerous reality is. The world will have a foothold of control in your life. Look at the story. Look at what happened. He comes back and there are two kings who walk out. The first is Melchizedek. Melchizedek comes out and I just want you to pay attention to him. He comes out with bread and wine. He comes out to provide food for the army. It's not much. Well, they just got looted, right? The cities were just being looted left and right. So I don't know how much they had, but he brings it out, right? And here's this mysterious Melchizedek who comes out and provides bread and wine for the army. But then you have the king of Sodom. And what does he do when he comes out? He says, hey, Give me the persons, but you take the goods for yourself. Here's the successful Abram, the, the one who's demonstrated a, he's a better king than any of these kings are, right? And Abram is trusting God as the possessor of all things. So this is what Melchizedek says to him. Blessed be Abram by most, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Abram comes back and says... I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Abram understood and trusted that God is the one who possessed all things. So even though he had gone and won the war and brought all this stuff back, it wasn't his. Let me make sure we all have to understand this. No matter what you have, no matter how hard you work for it, no matter how many battles you fought, God owns it all. He's the possessor of everything, which means that every gift that you have is a gift from him. When you understand this and you trust him that he's the possessor of all, then you understand that everything you have is a good gift from him. That frees you, that frees you to be generous, it frees you to give, it frees you to not hold on to things, it frees you to not find your identity in those things, and it frees you from the power of the world that says we can give it and we can take it away. Here's Abram who understands and trusted that God is the possessor of all. Abram trusted that God is the deliverer of victory. Melchizedek says again, And blessed be God most high, verse 20, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. This battle belonged to the Lord. God had delivered these powerful enemies into the hand of Abram. And Abram gives honor to the Lord as does Melchizedek. Folks, I want to make sure you understand this. You have no victory in your life outside of God's work in your life. You cannot accomplish your salvation. You cannot accomplish your sanctification. You cannot accomplish anything of eternal worth without the power of the Lord working in your life. Give honor where honor is due. Where there's success, lift up the name of Jesus. Where there's struggle, lift up the name of Jesus. Abram understands. Abram trusted in God enough to honor the Lord in quote unquote tithe. Melchizedek comes out, blesses Abram, showing that Melchizedek is greater than Abram, and Abram showing that he is not as great as Melchizedek. And believe me, that throws a wrench into everything for the Jewish people. We'll get to that next week. What does he do? He gives him a tenth of everything. Because he's the he's the priest and king. He's the one who is ruling over the city that one day will be the city of God. And here's Abram, and he understands that this is a man who knows the Most High God. This is a man who is a priest of the Most High God, and by honoring this man, he's honoring the Lord. 
Abram trusted in God enough to give away the spoils. Hey, you keep that, I'll take this. He goes, no, 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 make sure all these guys get what they need. You take enough to make sure to pay for the food over there. I'll just take what's mine and I'll take my family and we'll go. Right? I'll just ask you. Is your identity, is my identity too wrapped up into this, in the successes of this world to be able to give them away? See, when our identity is wrapped up in the successes and the stuff that we get through those successes, you would never do that, would you? I would never do that, would I? Work too hard for this. I was the one who went to battle. I was the one who led. Why would I give this away? Yet he trusts the Lord as the possessor, the provider. He trusts the Lord enough to give away the spoils. And finally this, and this may be the most important victory of the day for Abram, and a victory we all need in our life. Abram trusted in God enough in his provision to reject the world's rewards. Look how he ends this conversation with the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours. Now, that sounds really noble, right? He says, nope, I, I, I made a vow to the Lord. I lifted my hand to the Lord. I said, I'm not taking anything that belongs to the king of Sodom. The king, you know, that could sound really righteous. Do you see why he did it? Look at why. So that you cannot say, I have made Abram rich. That guy was not going to have power over Abram. The world's rewards, the world's ideas, the world's power was not going to have power over Abram. The fact of the matter is, there was a dangerous battle against four kings, but the more dangerous battle was in Abram's heart in that moment of success. Folks, what do you do with success in your life? We don't talk about success much in church, do we? We usually talk about how to deal with trials. What do you do with success? How do you deal well with success? Because that's more dangerous than the trials. When you find earthly success, when you find a success in this world, it's really easy for the world to then have power over you. So how do we guard against that? Well, I think in thinking through what it looks like to be an Israelite on the cusp of going into the land, we get a clue. And I'll close with this. As Moses is writing this to the people on the border, getting ready to go into the promised land, the question is being asked of them, God's going to give us success. <laughs> How are you going to deal with it? Are you going to have faith enough to take what God has promised? And what are you going to do when he gives us success? And I ask you this. Will we be courageous and faithful to enter the land and trust God's promise? This is for the Israelites. This is for us. One day, it has been promised to us that one day, those of us who are in Christ Jesus will be in a new heavens and a new earth. Look around. It won't be like this forever. I mean, in new heavens and a new earth, will we will reign beside Jesus, our King. That's good news, isn't it? Do you believe that? Do you believe it enough to actually courageously live as if it's true? 
to actually courageously follow what God's design is to say, this is not my home. I have a new heaven and a new earth that I'm longing for and waiting for. That I'm just tenting here. Taking up temporary residence here. Living as a sojourner, an alien, an exile. Longing for a greater city who's coming. that's coming. That's how Abram lived. And so even the people of Israel going into the land needed to have this picture. This is the promise, but it's not the ultimate promise. The ultimate promise is they will be my people and I will be their God and I will be with them. That's the ultimate promise. Will we live courageously as if that's true? Secondly, will we trust God's power? Will we trust God's power like Abram trusted God's power to take our smaller army, this band of brothers, into battle and win? Let me ask another question to go with. Will we fight the right battles so that when we take our smaller army in, we'll win? There's a great battle for the hearts and minds of men, women, and children in our world, and it has everything to do with the gospel, not politics. Fight the right battles. It doesn't have anything to do with a lot of the things I spend my time thinking about every day. If I'm being honest, I spend a whole lot of time on wasted thought. Things that will not matter in eternity. And I ask you, am I going to be wise enough to trust God's power to fight the right battles, knowing that we can take this band of brothers into that war and win? Third, will we keep God's law? Not accept the spoils of this war. Not accept the spoils of the pagan land. Will the provision of the Lord be enough for us. Does God give good gifts? Are they enough for you? Or do you keep wanting more? Fourth, will we remember God in our success? Honoring him. Will we win the more dangerous battle in our life? What are you going to do with success in your life? Are you going to give God glory? Are you going to give God honor? Because if you don't, if you don't, here's the great danger. The world will have control over your identity. The world will have control over you and what brings you joy and what doesn't. When you will not give honor to God and success... What will happen is you'll be so success-driven because of the praise of man that you'll miss being faithful and full of faith. You'll, you'll become pragmatic. It'll be about fighting the next battle and winning. It'll be, what I, can I get out of that? What can I get out of them? What can I get out of this situation? But when we refuse to take the spoils of this world and what they value... And instead, value God as supreme and enough for us. What it frees us from is the world's control. To live as sojourners and exiles, to live not bound up in this world, but to be set free. Which allows us to finally look forward to the ultimate promise. Next week, I want you to see Melchizedek as one who is going to be a picture of that ultimate promise we have in Christ. So I'll close you with this thought. Is Jesus better than anything that this world could offer you? Try again. Is Jesus better 
than anything that this world could offer you. Okay, including the stuff you think you've earned. Let me say that again. (laughs) Including the stuff you think you've earned. That's a tough one, though, isn't it? That's where the rubber meets the road in the Christian life, isn't it? It's really easy to say, it is well with my soul when things are really bad. Is it harder to say, yeah, God, you're so good. You really want that from me when things are really good? I I just want to make sure we understand the Lord's going to give success in your life. There's going to be a lot of trial. But there are going to be those moments of success. I just ask you, what are you going to do with it? What am I going to do with it? What are you going to, what are you going to start doing when God starts answering all of these prayers we, we lift up to the Lord every Sunday? What do we do in those moments? Are we going to give glory to Him? Are we going to honor Him? Are we going to say, I mean, just think how silly this sounds. I must be really good at praying. Sounds pretty silly, doesn't it? But do we not live when we have success as if I must be really good at living then in order to have this type of success? What are you going to do with it? The greater battle is not against kings. It's not against the culture. It's not against the world around us. It's against our own hearts and pride. And I pray the Lord gives us great success for his kingdom and that he gets great glory from us. As he brings that success. Let's pray. Father we do thank you for Jesus. We ask that Jesus. Not only lead us. But that we would follow. That we would be ones who would walk by faith. Not by sight. That we would not hold fast to the things of this world. But we would hold fast to the hope. That is found in Christ Jesus. Lord I thank you for Genesis. For the book of Genesis. That walks us through how you keep your promises. And yet Lord it's a messy world. And we live in this world of sin. And and anger, and violence, and greed. Lord, keep us from temptation. Deliver us from evil. So that we can proclaim that yours is all the power and the glory and honor. We want to be those people who display that in this world. So Lord, keep us from evil. Give us success, Lord, we ask, by your power and your provision. Lord, we commit ourselves to give you glory. To give you glory. To walk with courage in the midst of struggle and to give you glory and adoration in the midst of great success so the world will know that you are king. Lord, help us to do that by your spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.